Welcome to Tea Time Theology. I'm your host for this episode, Taylor Wilkie. Today, I have with me Father Craig Swan of St. Peter's by the Sea in Narragansett, and we will be talking about John the Baptist. Welcome, Craig. Thank you. Glad to, glad to be here. First of all, thanks for coming on. We're really excited to have you on this season. I initially reached out and asked you what you wanted to talk about, and you chose John, John the, the Baptist. Baptist. Um, why did you choose John the Baptist? I think John the Baptist is, there's so much that there's out there that people think they know about him. It's interesting who he is, where he came from, and um, he's not usually talked about, but he's quite an interesting character in the New Testament, so I thought he was worth bringing forward. Absolutely. I, uh, I I did all of probably 30 minutes of YouTube research on John the Baptist, and you're right, he is a very interesting guy. Let's start with the obvious question right off the bat. Who is, who was John the Baptist? So John the Baptist, in terms of kind of genealogy and how he fits into the play, is we know that John the Baptist is a relation of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, we always say that he's his cousin, and he was, but not like first cousins because mm-hmm. Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. So they're either second cousins or third cousins. We're not really sure how far the, down the line he is. But the other thing that we know about John the Baptist is that he was born into the priestly family. And in the Gospel of Luke, he was born to Zechariah. And Elizabeth and Zechariah is told that John is going to be born after Elizabeth was unable to bear children by an angel while he was in the Holy of Holies as a priest Mm -hmm. doing sacrifice on behalf of the people for their forgiveness most likely or possibly during uh, you know, the time of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So he comes with this wonderful pedigree. He's a relationship of Jesus. And then the next thing we know is he kind of pops out of the desert as this kind of aesthetic character who is actually serving as the prophet mm. to Jesus and kind of telling the world that which we're waiting for is about to come. Yes. And so... How all that came to be, we don't know. There's a lot of conjecture out there, kind of archaeological stuff that says, well, maybe he came from here, maybe he came from there. We just don't know the whole story, but we do know that somehow he and Jesus had a relationship of some sort long before mm. he shows up on the scene. Okay, so G- so what you're saying is, is Jesus and John the Baptist have met before the events right. of the Bible. Right. They were family. Um, Their mothers were close, Mm. as we see in Luke. So it's most likely that they grew up together or Mm. got together as family. Who knows? The other piece of conjecture out there is that it's possible they both were part of the um, Essene community at Qumran Mm. and kind of 
grew into adulthood in that community. There are some, some things that John the Baptist is about, especially in terms of the baptism that he offers of forgiveness, that indicates he might have been part of that desert community. Mm. And it's possible Jesus was part of that desert community for a while as well. So they may have also gotten to know each other there. Who knows? Possibilities exist. There's no, nothing tells us one way or the other. Okay. Some people say that uh, John the Baptist is a transition figure in the Bible. Um, sort of a link between the New and the Old Testament. What do people mean by that when they say that he is a transition figure? So he is definitely a prophet in style out of that of the prophets of ancient Israel, of Isaiah. He is introduced using the words of Isaiah. So in that respect, he pulls from the past and kind of styles himself in the way of the past in terms of talking about what's to come and the kingdom. And so he brings that past with him and then begins to point people towards Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And so that's what we mean. He's sort of that, he's the hinge between the old reality and the new reality, but he's not the new reality. He's in between. Now, um, in my, in the research I did um, before this, there was a lot of talk about how people really did think John the Baptist was the Messiah. They were like, this guy, this guy's it. He's talking the fire and the brimstone and the things are going to change and it's going to happen soon and it's happening right now. Um, why do you think people at that time really believed that John the Baptist was the guy who they were waiting for and, and they didn't want to wait around for Jesus, I guess? I don't think it's a matter of not wanting to wait around for Jesus, but he is offering a radical message of at least repentance at this mm. point despite his unique personality that comes through in the Gospels, um, there was something charismatic about him. People were following him. There's excitement around him. He stood up to power. Mm. And so if we look back at that time period, you know, we always think about Jesus as the only Messiah, the only one that they were called towards. But the fact is there were at times people were really looking for that savior to get them out of Roman rule. Mm. And the prophecies of Isaiah were there. And so it wasn't unusual that someone would come along and they would just start seeing their powerfulness and their message, mm. um, how people were attracted to them, that they're offering something radically or it felt radically different from what they knew. And so they just begin to put, well, maybe it's him. They were mm. looking for something to free them from the Roman occupation. They were looking for that independent Israel again. And we find that also when we look at Jesus himself. They're talking to him about uh, freeing the kingdom of Israel from Rome and getting out of the oppression. And Jesus is talking about a kingdom that has nothing to do with the earthly reality. Hmm. And so the same thing with John the Baptist. He's bringing in, saying, come back to God. Let's get it together. Let's repent. And that would usher in a new reality, a new Jerusalem, much in the same way that we look back in the days of um, King David and things like that. So that is probably why they were beginning to put the Messiah piece towards him. Mm. There were others that were perceived to be a Messiah, but not in the same understanding that we have of Jesus. Okay. It was very 
much a messiah is one who frees, you know, anyone who's going to free them. The messiah they often were looking for was the one who was going to be a military messiah who was going to free them from the physical oppression of Rome. Okay. Now, you just mentioned the the prophecy of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear that thrown around a lot. <laughs> um, I have no idea what it means or what it is. What was that? So, Isaiah, we hear at Christmas time. Mm. And uh, the prophecy that we that John the Baptist brings with him in is that from, I think, Isaiah 40, uh, where it says, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so that is the prophecy that he brings with him. But also we look at the suffering servant prophecies of Isaiah as well, Prince of Peace, um, Counselor, Wonderful Counselor, etc. Those all come out of the book of Isaiah that talk about a Messiah that will come to free Israel from mm. its bondage and that it will come of a young woman and he will be the suffering servant. And so that's contained within the contents of Isaiah. So we often look back to the Isaiah prophecies mm. to understand who Jesus is. And it's used quite a bit in reference points within the Gospels. Okay, and I can see from that, from the story of John the Baptist, a suffering savior, from his life, you can see how people could think mm-hmm. this is this is the guy who Isaiah was talking about, um, living in the desert for so long, ended up being captured. Let's talk about John the Baptist's story. Mm-hmm. I, I know we talked about like you know who his parents were and all that, but like you know his story starts with divine intervention, right? With, from Archangel Gabriel comes mm-hmm. down to his father, you know, essentially says you're going to have a kid with your wife who's barren, right? Mm-hmm. Biblically, what does that usually mean? Or maybe a better question would be, why does God send an angel down and seemingly create life where life does not exist? So I think you're asking two different questions. Great. And Okay. So the first question is, why an angel? Well, yeah. an angel is God's messenger. So instead of God coming down directly and saying, thou shalt... The angels come. They're the messengers of God. That was their role back then. Mm -hmm. Very different from today's role. There was a message for the community to be had or a message for someone to be had from God. So that was his um, communication person. The next thing is why um, birth into a barren womb? It's to talk about the miraculousness of God and how he can overcome nature. Uh, In the case of Sarah and Abraham, it is God is able to create from that which is dead, new life. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the symbolism that carries forward. So the story of the barren womb uh, is really yet again a story of how from something that has died, whether it be Israel or the people, whatever you want to put Luke's symbolism on, a new life and a new reality is coming and a new people. And so that's kind of why that formula keeps cropping up throughout the Bible. Mm. Okay. That's very interesting. John the Baptist is born. He lives for a while. He goes out into the desert. Does he go out into the desert before or after he meets Jesus? Again, that's not clear. Okay. So, uh, so we'll he, just... Because he comes out of the desert, he knows about Jesus. That's okay. clear at the river, right? Yes. So, obviously, he knew about Jesus at some point, either before or during the time in the desert. Okay. So, he meets Jesus at the river. Mm-hmm. And at that point, why don't you describe that encounter between John the Baptist and Jesus? Okay. 
for us. So it's clear in the baptismal accounts of Jesus that John knew who he was and was very clear on who he was. And so, you know, we see at the encounter there is John does not feel that he is worthy to baptize Jesus. Now remember, John's baptism is about the washing away of one's sin. It was very much a part of who he was. It was not a long-term reality mm. as our baptisms are today. It was basically an act of repentance. Okay. And a washing away of one's sin. It doesn't mean that it was once and for all. Okay? So Jesus comes, and what is our belief about Jesus? But that he is one without any sin. Mm. He has no need to be baptized for remission of sins that he has committed. So it's very unique that Jesus goes there for that. And from John's perspective, you have no need of this. You are the one whose sandals I'm unworthy to tie. But yet, Jesus says, no, we're going to do this. Mm. And so we have that wonderful scene where he does baptize Jesus by immersion. And as Jesus comes up, we've got the parting of the skies, some implications of dove coming down, but we hear the voice of God, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And so there's a very, this great theophany is going on. It's like, how did everyone miss it and not understand? But clearly it was missed. But it is this terrific turning point in Jesus' life. Yeah. In that that marks in all the Gospels, or the three synoptics, that he is beginning his ministry and work in the world. Up until that point, Jesus is just kind of leading a pretty quiet private life, whatever he was doing. But now he, he was marking the beginning of his work and ministry in the world and leading all the way up to the cross itself. Mm. He'd begun the journey. So um, from what I understand, um, at that point, Jesus is baptized in the, in the river. And at that point, John the Baptist kind of becomes Jesus' teacher. I, I wouldn't call it that. Okay, because what would you call it? it's a very brief encounter. Okay. It's merely, it's a marking of a change in movement. Okay? Okay. It, it's not about becoming his teacher. It's about ending whatever relationship Christ had prior to that and moving into his role on earth. Okay. So it's not like John is teaching him. Mm. John is merely a actor in the play of doing what John does to mark a beginning for Jesus. It's interesting as when you get to his arrest and his imprisonment, and this mm. is more in, I think, John's gospel, is where after that mark point, John the Baptist is arrested and imprisoned. Mm. And what becomes interesting in John's, in John's gospel, which is much more graphic, is you see Jesus has now begun. John's role has come to an end. Okay. And he literally fades off the stage. And also we see in John him sending his two of his disciples to follow Jesus. Okay. Okay. So you just brought up the uh, the, the arrest of John the Baptist by uh, Herod Antipas. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Antipas. Uh, why was John the Baptist arrested by Herod and subsequently spent the rest of his life in prison? Okay. So again, there's a little bit of speculation around that. There's some stuff in the gospel. There's also um, 
stuff written about him. In mm. the, so, so let me talk about first century history and where we get most of our information from. Okay. Most of the information is found in the Gospels and the Book of Acts. And there's one other historian from Palestine at that time, and that is Josephus. And so when you begin to pull things together on that century, that's where most historians pull their information from, those five sources. Okay. Or six. And so in the gospel story, what we have is the fact that he, he is arrested because we know Herod is afraid of him. For what reason? What Josephus tells us is that, again, he's getting this groundswell of support from people. He becomes a potential threat to his power. Okay. Okay. The other gospel story that you get that comes out is there's a little jealousy or a little distaste around John because he spoke out against Herod's marriage to Herodias. And that's because he married, if I remember correctly, his brother's wife. And so um, the bottom line is he criticized Herod. And so there's the other possibility that, again, his groundswelling and rebellion or um, it could cost Herod you know, there's superstition. He's um, paranoid. Herod is. If he goes in, going into battle, losing battle, and could be blamed on this reality. So there's all sorts of, again, speculation out there. But what the Bible tells us is um, basically Herod was upset because he was criticizing his marriage. And Josephus, I think, tells us more of the deeper issue is that it was a threat to his power. Do you have any info other than that he was in prison? Um, like what his life in prison was like. There um, really is nothing there. Uh, we know first century prisons were not exactly comfortable. Okay. Uh, though it's interesting because we do have, like again, in John's gospel, this idea that he had some sort of access to the outside world because his disciples, John and Andrew, come to him and tell him about Jesus. So it may not be what we imagine or some of the prison, old first century prisons I've seen throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. It may have been just a cell with a bed and you know, bars on the window and just a small space that he was confined to. We don't really know, but he was there for a while. That much we do know. Okay. Then eventually, John the Baptist is taken out of prison and is meets with uh, Herod again and is given some type of... and forgives him. Or does Herod forgive John the Baptist? I'm not sure. Mm, that one I'm not aware of. Oh, okay. I'm not aware of that. Um what I am more aware of is okay. the fact that when Herodias' daughter dances for Herod at his yes. birthday, promised her anything, and of course Herod's wife um, is scheming around the idea that um, let's chop his head off because it'll get rid of the problem. Because mm. she's also threatened if he influences Herod. That's really the only piece that I'm aware of um, from a biblical standpoint. So the scheme to get rid of John the Baptist was started by Herodias, Herod's wife. The ultimate scheme to execute yes. is um, Herodias', yeah, Herodias' desire mm. to kind of get rid of the problem. Okay. And, the pro- and like you said, the problem is John the Baptist has amassed too much influence over the people. Right. And therefore needs to go. Right. And... If he's got power and power from God, mm. this could affect him very negatively. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot of fear of what his power, of his growing power and influence. Mm. 
And so there's a very political reason going on behind it. Okay. Now, you mentioned that during his time as president, his former disciples come to him and tell him more about Jesus. And it's kind of like a turning point in the in the Bible, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. where John the Baptist needs to let go of that ministry and kind of pass the, pass the baton off to Jesus at that point. Um, what what is that part like, and like what does that kind of tell us about him as a person and the greater story overall? Well, and it, and again, there's no linear line. Okay? okay, and that's fine. We're so if you look at it, you've got one storyline over in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mm-hmm. and then you got the Johannine storyline. Storyline, and so is in John that we kind of have this different reality because the disciples go and tell him about Jesus. And he asks him, is it the one? And he goes back to, they go back to Jesus. And Jesus says, well, tell him what you have seen. And they go back to John and tell him. Okay. And he sends them to follow Jesus at that point. So it's kind of a, this weird reality because John makes it like they really aren't sure of each other. But yet the synoptics, synoptics tell us otherwise. So it's, that's one of the, sort of the interesting things about analyzing the Gospels is that mm. they give us bits and pieces. And each one is trying to tell a story of who Jesus of Nazareth is and how they understand and have encountered him. And so you get kind of these interesting different perspectives of what they emphasize and don't emphasize. Okay, so with that being said... If you had to choose a John the Baptist from a gospel that you preferred the most, (laughs) which John the Baptist is your favorite? I kind of like the one at the Jordan River from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay. I love his, um, just his oddness, because it is such a wonderful reminder that, you know, God really works through us who are authentic people, and John the Baptist was just truly authentic. He stood out in a crowd, <laughs> mm. you know, with the hair suit, um, camel hair shirt that was itchy and scratchy, the belt around his waist, and his whole diet, everything just, he definitely stood out in a crowd in downtown Nazareth, let's put it that way, okay. or Jerusalem, wherever yeah. he may be. So, obviously, John the Baptist, this is where we get the baptism from. And you mentioned earlier that his idea or what he was doing is now different from what we do right. when someone is born. What are those differences, and how do we hold that his tradition in our current tradition, I guess? It's, I think first let's look at the ritual of purification in Judaism. We know from the story of the wedding at Cana that the water that Jesus turned into wine was um, water for the act of purification of women. Uh, so... Acts of purification were very much part of Jewish life. Mm. No one could enter the temple until they went through a ritual purification in what they call a mikvah. And I also know at in Qumran, um, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, throughout where the community was, you see remains of these mikvahs and members of the Qumran community ritually bathed in them multiple times a day. So there is that ritual washing of oneself that was very much part of ancient life around the temple or in different communities. So in that regard, that's what he was offering a kind of a very public, very outspoken manner Mm. 
in the um, Jordan River to the people. There is elements of that in baptism today because we do talk about baptism as washing away of sin. It's one of the aspects. When we baptize, we wash away, quote-unquote, original sin. Okay? The concept of full immersion from the baptism of Jesus with John the Baptist, I think has slight variation on the theme from his day because it truly symbolized Jesus moving from one life as a private person into his life as a public preacher and teacher. Okay, So it went from old life to new life. In baptism today, when we baptize, the idea is that we die to our old life of sin and we rise from the water into our new life with Christ. And so that aspect of baptism, new life or old life to new life, washed of sin and then brought forth into new life with Christ, plays off of that somewhat. But then there's a, yet another part of today's baptism that people don't often talk about. And again, it goes back to Jesus in the River Jordan with God who proclaims, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, also can be taken. It is the commissioning of Jesus into his ministry. And so through the waters of baptism, we are washed of original sin, cleansed. We are allowed to die to our old life and rise to new life with Christ, but we are also commissioned to be ministers of Christ in the world. And people forget that aspect of baptism because it's almost, you know, we do infant baptism nowadays. We carry with it kind of a history of a cultural thing that we do. But the depth of what we're really doing is one about a public acclamation of our faith in Christ. Hmm. But it's also about being commissioned, literally ordained into ministry as lay people and authorized by the church. You receive the Holy Spirit and therefore now have the authority of the church to go out into the world, very much as the stories are in the book of Acts and we, mm. we see the apostles going out into the world, able to do much and most of the things that Jesus did in the world in terms of his miracles and healing. We carry that authority and power with us as um, baptized members of the community. We are commissioned and able to do that as well. I guess the last question I have for you today, why is John the Baptist important to our faith as it stands today? And how is he still relevant to the times we're living in right now? The call of John the Baptist remains that reality, that we are looking for the Christ and always looking for the Messiah to arrive. We live waiting for the return of Jesus. And so the words of John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord sticks with us today as modern Christians because it is our work to prepare the way for the Messiah to return and for the arrival of the um, kingdom of God on earth. And we do that, and we're called to do that work. John really basically, um, with a sickle or whatever you want to say, basically cut through the weeds of his time to clear the way for Jesus to begin his work. And we are in that position where we are called to cut through the weeds of this life, to open the way so Christ can come and the kingdom can be ushered in. And so I think in that way, we join with John the Baptist in looking and working towards something yet to come. Wonderful. Well, Craig, thank you so much for being on this season of Tea Time Theology and sitting down with me today. 
Um, <clears throat> is there anything you would like to promote? Um, any social medias or uh, actually? The question we ask is, if someone was looking to listen to you on a Sunday, <laughs> where can they find well, you? Well, we want to tell you that we're on Apple Podcast, and our oh. services are podcasted most weeks, uh, as well as other events. You can also find me uh, occasionally on a podcast called Conversations Between a Rabbi and a Priest, in which I spend time with the rabbi around the corner, Rabbi Ethan Adler, and we talk about things from a Jewish-Christian perspective. And so you can find us on Apple Podcast, um, Spotify, um, also through our website, www.stpetersbythesea.com. Wonderful. Once again, thank you so much for coming, Craig, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. It was a joy. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology, a ministry of St. John's Cathedral in Rhode Island. We would like to thank our producers, Mo Akande, Ivy Swinsky, and Taylor Wilkie. Special thanks to Mo Akande and David Hines for the Season 3 music, and our sponsors, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley. Follow us at Tea Time Theology on all social medias.